0: Good morning. So um, we are reaching the end of um, our series, looking at all the different characters, not all of them, it wasn't a completely exhaustive list, but a list of characters to whom God spoke and how they responded. And can you remember them all? That's the question. So we started with Jonah. And then it was Moses, and then it was, was it Peter then? And then it was um, Mary, was it Mary next? Um, And then Gideon, was it Gideon, or have I missed one? Um, And Abraham, and Elijah, who have I missed? Samuel, of course, let's not forget. Samuel, Samuel, whom God called, was it six times? Yes, I thought that, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Do you know, what worried me because there is a passage in the Bible which says that if you add anything to Scripture, (laughs) so, yeah, yeah, that was interesting with Samuel where we opened the book and saw more in it than we'd previously seen. It was was great, well done. (laughs) Yes, there was that, and um, yeah. And then we did Elijah. Is that them all? I think that's them all. Excellent. And now we've come to Hannah. Now, the interesting thing with Hannah, and I know you're going to sort of say, well, why have you got Hannah? Because when you read the story, God doesn't actually say anything. This is the only one we've got where it doesn't say, and God said to Hannah. Hannah. And it, and it doesn't. And if I'm honest with you, that's quite sort of deliberate, uh, and we'll come to why in in a second. But I'd like to read to you from Luke chapter twelve. And in Luke twelve, just a, a, a brief section, um, verses thirteen to twenty one. So Luke twelve says this. Um, Someone in the crowd said to him, "'Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me.' Jesus replied, "'Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you?' Then he said to them, "'Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man produced good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down the barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. So we want to look at the story of Hannah, And then I've got some questions. Okay, so listen carefully. No, it's not those kind of questions. Um, But there's Elkanah, who's the man. He's the husband. Now, what we know at the end of the story is that Samuel grows up and becomes a priest. And those of you who are biblical scholars will say, wait a second, I've read in Samuel that it says that Elkanah was an Ephraimite. But all the priests are Levites, how can that be? And I will just refer you to First Chronicles chapter 6, what you mean you haven't studied those first twelve books, of, first twelve chapters of First Chronicles, all those chronolo- chronologies. Well, in there, um, chapter 6, the lineage that includes Samuel is there. And there's Elkanah, and they are of the tribe of Levi. So, the likelihood is that Elkanah, and Ephraimite, lived in Ephraim. There is a possibility his grandfather was adopted into the Levite tribe, but more likely that that's where they lived because, remember, the Levites didn't have any land. They lived in other people's land because their portion was God. So anyway, there's Elkanah. He has two wives, Penina. she has children. Hannah has none. So, every year, Elkanah takes his family to Shiloh, which was where the tabernacle, there's no temple yet, so the tabernacle, where the Ark of the Covenant is, and there they celebrate the feast. That's where Eli is the priest and his two sons called Hophni and Phinehas. Now, Hophni and Phinehas are, by any account, dodgy. So they take more than they should um, in lots of ways. I'm checking for children before I advise that you look at the details, um, because they really do take all sorts of things that they shouldn't. But anyway, they go up there. Now, Penina is very unpleasant to Hannah because she's saying, I've got children and you haven't, and that's very hurtful. Elkanah, the husband, tries to be sympathetic to Hannah, and I always wonder, did that actually make Penina worse? I mean, is the favor given to one incite the other? Not that it makes it right, but I always wonder about that. So anyway, Hannah goes to the temple and prays. She prays, Lord, give me a son and I'll dedicate him to your service. Eli thinks she's drunk, discovers she isn't, blesses her. And eventually she has a son called Samuel, and after he's weaned, takes him to the temple. She prays a remarkable prayer of thanksgiving, which we're going to talk about, recognizing that it's God who provides. And then Samuel stays in the temple, and every year Hannah brings him new clothes. But Hannah then goes on to have three sons and two daughters. So from no children, she has six which is enough for anybody really, I would have thought. Um, But but who am I to say? Two was plenty for me. They're both grown up. I'm still skint. How does that happen? I don't know. Anyway, there we go. So that's the story. What are the things that we can learn from this? Okay, the first thing I want to say before we go any further, and I do want to say this before we go any further, that the Bible is being really unfair to my sermon. (laughs) So, um, because of this, some of the things I want to say, and I really feel I should be sharing with you today, are a bit loaded because it's about Hannah wanting a baby as opposed to wanting other things. And that's a bit loaded, and I just want to say before we start that it's not quite the same as wanting other things, people wanting children. It's not quite the same. And I don't want to appear sort of callous or mercenary. I want you to recognize that I recognize that, you know, the desire to have children has more to it than the desire to have other things. And it's very difficult and not um, an easy thing to cope with or make sense of if if you want children, you can't have them. So, I I just want you to recognize that. I recognize that. And although I want to make, which I think are quite important lessons from the Scriptures, the Bible hasn't made it easy for me to do this this sermon. I I wish that God had chosen a better example. Let's just put it like that. Um, because it would be easier, and, and, well, I'm sure he knows what he's doing. But if he'd asked my advice, it <laughs> would, would, would have helped him a little bit better, you know what I mean? But anyway, there we go. I'm being a bit irreverent, and I don't mean to be. So we need to recognize that. But here's the question. The first question is this. Was God waiting for Hannah to say what she said before he said yes? You see, I find it highly unlikely that Hannah hadn't said to God, Please give me a son before now. I imagine that she had said it a lot. Please give me a son. 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 Was it that when she said, Please give me a son and I'll give him to the temple? that God said, that's it. That's the one. That's what I was waiting for. Now I can say yes. Because this couldn't have been the first time. Did God give it then that it was God's plan? And it was an enormous plan. You know, Samuel became the priest of Israel. He blessed Hannah, no doubt, by arriving. He blessed the temple by being there, or the tabernacle. He blessed the nation by being there. He anointed David king. Samuel's legacy is enormous, but it needed for him to be dedicated to the temple. So, I don't know, but I'm asking, did God wait for Hannah to get round to saying, please give me a son and I'll dedicate him to the temple? And I wonder if that's where it is. James, in his letter in the New Testament, says, you don't get because you ask for the wrong motives. And it is this question about why. Why do you want it? What's it for? We'll come back to that. So anyway, but Hannah displays a biblical principle, which is about the firstborn. In the Old Testament, God said to the children of Israel, the first belongs to Me. Every time, the first belongs to Me. So, f- the firstborn of all your cattle, the first fruits of all your crop, and your first son belongs to Me. And you have to go, this is the Israelites, not you, you have to come to the, to the tabernacle and then to the temple and redeem back for five shekels of silver the son you've just had. You have to bring them in, redeem them, and come back. And the overall principle is that an entire tribe belongs to Me, that's the Levites, and all your other children are in lieu of that. So, there is this principle in the Old Testament for all the children of Israel that God gets first. God gets first, not you, me. God gets first, and that's really important. Now when, when Hannah gives Samuel away, the promise she says is, and a razor will never touch his head, which is, you know, a bit of a challenge, you would have thought. Um, but there was that thing about he was not shaved. He was left um, to be, I don't know, what's the right word? Oh natural. Let's put it like that. Not manicured. Not, um, what's the word? Controlled by the world. Not controlled by fashion. Not controlled um, by any of these things, but left to God. Now, I have no idea whether. God controlled the rate at which his hair grew, or indeed remained. I've asked him many times. He's always said, no, um, what can I say? No, I'm joking. I wouldn't know what to do with it now if I had it, to be perfectly honest. I have no idea. So, but, you know, there was, but the, the point was, it was, he was separate. He was cut off. He was, he was different. He was set apart. So, all of that went to God. And in the Old Testament, we're going to come back to this. This was the deal. The tithe, the tenth, went to God. The first fruits went to God. The firstborn went to God. You redeemed back, but it went to God. And then the rest was yours. So after Samuel, Hannah has more children. So because she gave to God first. So, God blessed her with more. Does that make sense? So, I just want you to think about this, because we've talked about this already, and I have to say it's quite interesting, we're talking about Ramadan, we're talking about a different religion, because I I was really reflecting on this about two weeks ago, and I was thinking one of the really interesting things about Hannah is this, that God treated Hannah in the way that other religions wouldn't have recognized. Because God treated Hannah as an individual, as a person in her own right. God did not treat with Hannah through her husband, but as a person in her own right. And those that claim that the Bible is sexist are in error. I know I've said this before, but they are. It's because they don't understand what the Bible says. God's dealing was with Hannah, the individual, and with her and her desire, and her and her pursuit. Elkanah, I'm glad to say, was very supportive, but God did not deal with her through her husband, and that separates us, and indeed Judaism, from other religions in that sense. And I'm very pleased about that. But anyway, he heard her personally. And here's the thing. This is the only person that we deal with in our whole series where God doesn't speak to Hannah. So how do we know that God heard Hannah? We know that God heard Hannah because of what happened. And we're going to talk today about understanding what God is saying by looking at what is happening and understanding what is happening, because it is one of the ways in which to understand that God is talking to us. I was talking with somebody on um, Friday, and they're embarking on a new line, and a new adventure, and a new venture, and this is what we said. We said, well, look, you step out, and if it happens, it's because God wanted it. And if it doesn't happen," because God wanted it. What you're doing is stepping out, and we'll know God's will because we'll see what happens. And there's a real principle in that, and that's what it is. So, there we are. Hannah requests to God. Does God wait for the request to come with the right motive before He grants it? But how do we know that God has heard Hannah because when she makes the request with the right motive, it happens, and Hannah is obedient, which is superb. So, in the Old Testament, people are redeemed out, the nation is redeemed from among the nations, and in the New Testament, and Hannah's a symbol of this, individuals. So, if you think about the big principle, the children of Israel. The Israelites are surrounded by all the nations, and God makes them different and separate. And it's the whole nation that's redeemed. In the New Testament, it isn't a whole nation. It's an individual, one at a time, that is redeemed. And Hannah is a foretaste of that, and and is Samuel, that individuals are set apart. And all the people we've talked about are like that. And we are like that. We live in the world, and it doesn't do us any favors. But in His mercy, God threw us a lifeline in Jesus, and we escape. Paul says, how can we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? So that's the first question. Did it come because the right request was made? So, was God waiting, not for the request, but for the request with the right motive? And is that you too? Is God waiting, not for you to ask for what you desire, but about why you desire it? Why do you desire it? We'll come back to that. Now, the second question is this. Up to that point, did Hannah want this for slightly different reasons. Now, this is where it gets awkward because, like I said, wanting a child is a bit of an unfair example. But it, it's still there. Did, did they want, you know, was it because everybody else had that she wanted? Was it because she felt that it was her duty to provide? Was it because her um, uh, partner, what do you what do you call two wives? What are they? What's their relationship to each other? Frankly, the idea scares me to death. Um, but um, what what do you call the other one? What were they called? Sisters? I d I I don't know. They said well yes, they probably were behaving like sisters, weren't they, with the na 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 na, I've got and you haven't. Ha 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 memories. Right, so um, but anyway, the, the, the other one, um, who's Penina, who's going, I've got children, you haven't. That's hard going. That's taunting. That's difficult. Was that what it was? And I, it was making me think about why do we want stuff? Why do we want things? What are we looking for? Is it because of comparison? Is it that we look around at what other people have and because they have it, we want it? Surely that's not you. Surely that's not you. What, what, what do we feel? Do we feel because we don't have that, we're missing out? That that's what we should have? That we are entitled to have it? That everybody else has it? Is this a weakness in people? Is it actually because we want to enhance our own sense of well-being or sense of standing is it about making sure that we can put it in other people's faces. I mean, obviously not that obvious, we stop being that obvious when we're about eight. You know To I mean? When we get the new car, it obviously has to go on the school run, even though we have our own, um, because, well, it's, we're running it in, aren't we? That's why we're doing that, not for any other reason, you know what I mean? The new shoes have to go on. Um, at the point at which the most people will see them i'm not talking about you by the way i'm talking about me uh, cuz i really like having new shoes uh, you know all those ki- i mean do people behave like that i know you don't but you know people other people do they do they do that maybe they do who knows is there something about us feeling that we are being successful or that our well-being is somehow being affirmed because when we look round we can see that we have accumulated in the way that other people have accumulated. And by comparison, therefore, we must be all right. Do we do that? No, of course we don't do that. In Romans chapter 10 verse 11, which reflects what Isaiah said, it said, anyone who trusts in Him, meaning God, will never be put to shame. Is that not what we look at? Do we feel shame when we look at what we have and look at what other people have and think we have to have because it's a shame that we don't, or we're ashamed we're somehow less than because we haven't had. And the list is endless, I mean endless, it's, it's nonstop. Look how exploited we are as human beings. The media has built an entire industry around this. You know, what? You haven't had three holidays this year? Are you properly providing for your family? I mean, there was actually an evening in the last year at which your child was not at a club. They are not getting the opportunities other children are getting. Shame on you. What are you? How old? You haven't replaced it yet. And what when you die? What about that? Are you being environmentally friendly? And a nice carriage clock to go with it. <laughs> it. It's a whole industry from start to finish. Just because we look around and we see what other people have and we notice what we haven't is fantastic. Jesus said in Luke, be on your guard against the word they use. Is greed, but the, it's in the Greek, it's pleonexia, it kind of means covetousness. It's the Greek version of the, of the Hebrew, which is hamad, which is the word which is in commandment number 10, thou shalt not hamad, thou shalt not covet. Jesus is saying, beware of the tenth commandment, looking round, don't look at other people's things. Their ox and their cart and their maid servant and, uh, and all manner of other things, their hairdo, their intelligence and their figure, their car and their house, their holidays. How easy their life is compared to how hard yours is. How much cleverer and more successful their children are than yours. How all the list, the list just goes on and on and on. How, you know, you, you go to Cornwall and they go to Tibet and they, do you know what I mean? And it's just, it's just, ne- honestly, never ending, always. It's, really? Is that good? Because I can tell you this as a Christian, the devil loves that one. He will put that in your ear every day, every chance Every second, he will get you to cast your eyes round and be discontent. He will put you in a place where you will always meet somebody who's smarter, who's brighter, who's prettier, who's cleverer, who's more successful, who's more sporty, who's fitter, whose eyesight is better, who's hairier. That one never bothers me. You know, who, I mean, who, you know who's a better, better at whatever you think are the, the really big spiritual gifts, and they seem to be better at them than you are, so they must be better Christians than you are. And you know, all those people, the devil goes, look at them, they never sin like you do. (laughs) The devil loves that one. You know what I mean? How tuned are your ears to that? And then, as a result of that, what does it make you want? Does it make you want to be smarter or cleverer? or better dressed, or thinner, or fatter, or more muscular, or fitter, or younger, or older, or better at this, or better at that, or having more of these things, or more of those things. What does it do? What does it do to you? I'll tell you what it does to you. makes you a prisoner. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Do we just put ourselves straight back in, but do we let that voice in our ear and those eyes cast round and we just walk straight back into prison again? Beware, Jesus said, beware of covetousness. Having stuff, being right, being better, cleverer, having more successful children, or possibly, I don't know, for the children, having more successful parents. That would There's an option too. Feeling less, because of what we haven't got. Do we compare constantly? Do we have just so we can say we have? Is that the point of having, just so that we can say we have? Does it enhance our self-worth? Now here's the last bit, which is about control. And I want to talk to you about this. If we have, or once we have received, is the disposal of what we have completely up to us? Is the disposal of what we have completely up to us? Now, I just want to put this here. You see, when we were in the world, we thought that we could choose to do whatever we wanted to do. But the reality is this, we never did do. We, we were just victims. We were, you know, I think of myself, you know, it is that point of looking around and thinking, I want this and I want that, I want that. I was listening to somebody just recently, very, very recently, and they were talking about how they went to a party for somebody who was 50. And the people who were there were basically doing what they dreamed of doing when they were sixteen, started doing when they were seventeen, perfected doing when they were twenty-one, and at fifty and sixty hadn't moved on, they were still doing the same old stuff. Just drink lots of alcohol, try and impress everybody, uh, and recover from the hangover afterwards. Do you know what I mean? And call that a good time. Now, what I know from the adventure that I've had in Jesus is that what I did when I was 18 and I was 19 looks small compared to the things that God has taken me to do. And I don't make myself out to be exceptional because I will tell you this, that the world makes you a small person and Jesus makes you more than you could ever hope or imagine. But we think we are free to be small because we don't realize how big we were created to be. But Jesus, praise God, redeemed us out of that. He paid the price that we might be firstborn into the kingdom. But it wasn't five shekels of silver, but his whole life he gave that we could be rescued from being less than people to more than people. How good is that? Are you excited by that? So here we are, we are redeemed out, and then God gives us good things. What is the deal? When we, I don't know about you, you know when you feel short of something, you ever felt short of something? Ever? No? Just me? Okay, and you say to God, please give me, and He does, and it's fantastic. And then the next time we feel short, the first question is, oh, no, I'm in a lot of trouble. I'm really short of things. I wonder if God will give it to me. And then we ask Him, and then He does, and then we're amazed. And after 50 years of that, we're still short, we still wonder whether God… does this happen to you? You know, you know that sort of perpetual crisis thing, you know? and, And we are really accumulative human beings. I don't know if you've noticed that. But here's the thing. Do you know how desperate that need is? As soon as it's fulfilled, it's immediately replaced by another desperate need. You know, I'm in so much trouble because I haven't got, phew, I've got it. I'm in so much trouble because I haven't got, we, you know, we sort of lurch. Have you noticed that? That's not you, just me. And the thing is, what we say is we say, thank you, Lord, for giving me your provision. Help me to trust you better for next time. And that's good, but it's not actually the right question. The right question is this, thank you, Lord, for your provision. Why have you given me this? Why have I got this? What is this for? Like Hannah, thank you, Lord, for my son. Now, about the pram, the nappies, the baby food, the 457 books that I now have to read to tell me how bad a parent I am, um, the nursery provision. Uh, No, why, why? Why have You given me this? Thank You, Lord, for my home. Why? Why have I got this home? Thank You, Lord, for this car. Why? Thank You, Lord, for my intelligence. Why, why have you given me it? What is it for? You see, the deal, and I'm going to be a bit shaky here, I did think a bit about this before pointing it out, but it's like this. Christians do not have the same deal as the Old Testament. But in our modern theology, it seems to get presented quite a lot. So, please listen up. In the Old Testament, You had a certain obligation, a tithe, and you gave that to God, and the rest was yours. That is not the New Testament deal for Christians. None of it is yours, ever. It's not yours. The Bible says we were bought with a price. You are not your own. So it isn't like, well, I've done my duty, now I can get on, that is not the deal. Now, for those of you who are not Christians, you might think that that sounds really restrictive, but if you're not a Christian, let me tell you, that is a phenomenally liberating point. The Bible says this, um, says the more wealth that someone accumulates, the more worry they have about what's going to happen to it. Solomon said, this is, he was one of the richest men ever. And he said, it's all meaningless because, frankly, you spend your whole life accumulating it and then somebody else gets it to waste. We are set free from this because that is not the Christian deal. The Christian deal is not that you give your tithe and then get on and enjoy the rest. You have no tithe. There is no 10 percent. There is 100 percent, and it's not yours, and it's not mine. It belongs to God. And that's interesting. In James 1, verse 17, it says, Every good and perfect gift comes from God above. It's In 1 Corinthians 6 and 30, it says, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You were revealed. Therefore, honor God with your body. That's your talents. That's your time. That's your gifts. That's what you're called to do. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. That's your money. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 21, it says, test everything. Hold on to what is good. That's the opposite. That's the opposite. That's the Bible telling you, if you have accumulated things that you shouldn't have, shed them. Test what you have. And if what you have is duff, dump it. There's an interesting one. What's that? Is that called downsizing, decluttering, get rid of the junk, guys, that's important. Paul says in in Romans 12, he says, therefore I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies, that was the first thing, as living sacrifices pleasing to God. This is an act of spiritual worship. Do not conform any longer to the world's pattern. You know that about looking round and wanting what you see and letting the devil speak. Don't conform to that, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So, stop thinking that what you have is yours and start knowing that it isn't yours. It all belongs to God. Then you will be able to test and approve God's will. So that's therefore you can test whether you've got junk you shouldn't have. And that includes our attitudes and our view of other people and our tendency to allow ourselves to compare ourselves to other people and think others better than us, including thinking other Christians more spiritual than us. They are not. There is no hierarchy in God's kingdom. It works like this. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, bunch of losers, (laughs) all struggling badly, really failing frequently, covering it up sometimes quite effectively, but really pretty well struggling. And that redemption power coming down to every individual one in equal measure because we stumble along with equal desperation. Don't let Satan lie to you that somebody here is more spiritual than you are because they are not. They might be a little further down the road, but you know, I wake up in the morning and I need Jesus just as much as I did the first time I said yes to Him. That has not changed. I tell people, and it's true, I have had occasions, not infrequently, where early in the evening, I'm sat with my arm on someone and leading them to Jesus and their life is transformed. And two hours later, I'm thinking something or doing something that I have to repent because their salvation is not my salvation. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do not believe these lies. This is nonsense. So. Let's understand. God is good and perfect. Everything He gives is good and perfect. Test that. If it didn't come from God, dump it. It's not going to do you any good, but we do accumulate. His gifts are good and perfect. His will is good and perfect. So, what Hannah learned is this, and she says it in her prayer, you can't rely on anybody but God. He's the only reliable source He's the only one who can tell you about you. He's the only one who can give you anything which is worth anything. It's not our health. It's not our lives or the lives of our loved ones. We have control over them. It's not our cleverness. We didn't decide that. It's not our family. God gave us those as gifts. It's not our pension or our earning power. Our earning power God gave us. It's not our children. It's not our contacts, it's not our position, it's not this government or any other. Um, It's not the approval of others, it's not even the church. Although I hope that none of those let you down, the risk is that every single one of them will. And so will I if you give me the chance. None of these we can rely on, only God only God, store up treasure in heaven. Romans 10 verse 11 says, anyone who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. We are saved and set apart by God. Only He can save us. Is that true? Only He, no one else. We cannot engineer our own salvation. So, here we go. Have you been redeemed from the world? What is the evidence that the world still holds on to you? And what is the evidence that you are free from the world? My, my suspicion, if you're anything like me, is it's a bit of a mixed bag. Do you know what I mean? We've managed a bit of let go, and we've got a bit of still holding on. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm suggesting a bit less holding on And a bit more letting go. Yeah. It's by grace we're saved through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift from God. We don't even control our faith. I try not to make a big deal of it, but in my head, something always goes off when people make statements like, I've come to faith. You don't come to faith, God gives you faith. I've lost my faith. You can't lose your faith, you can give it away my view is mostly people don't give it away. They just ignore it because they want something that they think God might not approve of, or in fact, they know God won't approve of. But you can't lose your faith. It's not yours to lose. God gives it you. And if you want more, and the disciples said that, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So, words like that we rely on God. Have you been? Has Jesus bought you out of the world? If he hasn't today, come, come and we'll pray with you. Because Jesus will set you free from all these traps and snares today. And if you are an individual who has one foot in one camp, one foot in another, and goodness knows that's all of us and you want to make another step, come to Jesus today. Let go. Test what it is that God has had given you. Second one is, have you been renewed in your mind? Have you been renewed in your mind? How do you view the world? Is the world actually a rather naughty friend who's a bit fun to be with? Are we still actually a bit in love with the world? Is it a trap that entices us to not follow Jesus? Who has the power over your behavior? Who controls your behavior? Is it shame? Is it pride? Is it fear? Is it resentment? Is it jealousy? Do we get out? Do we look at other people and get angry or get jealous or feel less than? Who controls when you back down? Who controls when you keep quiet? Who controls when you do things you don't enjoy? Who's in control here? Who controls whether you do things that you regret later? Who controls that? Who's in charge? Who has that power? Is it your friends? Is it the media? Is it advertising? Is it people from the past? Jesus can set you free from all of those things. Don't look to others and let them spoil what God has made you how do you view your talents and possessions? Are they yours? Are they God's? What are they for? Why did God give them to you? Why has God given you the life you've got? Why? What's it for? What are you doing with it? What am I doing with mine? What is all this junk? Is it useful? What is all this baggage I've got? Why am I carrying it? why am I so afraid? What's that about? Am I not free? Surely we are. I'm going on a bit. Excuse me, we'll finish in a second now. And I really will, I won't go, we'll finish, and then we'll finish, and then we'll finish, and finally, and then just I uh, uh, genuinely. Okay, so have you, and this is my final question, have you reviewed your future? What does your future hold? Into whose hands have you put the control of your future? And did they give you a carriage clock or or an interesting parker pen? The clue is, if they did, wrong people. God will give you a robe of righteousness and an eternal future, which is slightly more useful than a carriage clock. When you're under pressure. Where do you look? Where do your eyes go when you're under pressure? So when you're not under pressure, where do your eyes go? Is it I look to God when I'm in trouble, and I look to stuff when I'm not? Is it the other way around, I'm a good Christian until I'm under pressure? And then I start reviewing my savings plans and, and, you know, what time I've got. If I'm honest with you, both holes, I have been in them both. But ask ourselves that. So who do you look? Yourself, others, Jesus, who do you look? What is of more value to you? A good life now or life after death? Are you thinking now or eternal? What are you thinking? What's your priority? What's the priority you have for people close around you? Is your priority for the people who are close to you that they know Jesus and are with them after they die? Is that your priority? Or are your priorities something else? What's in here? I'm just asking you, have you reviewed? Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Righteousness means set apart, made right and acceptable to God. So, we need to rely on Him. So, Hannah asks, and when she asks in the right way, she gets, because we know why she got And then it was less important what other people thought and more important than what she did was righteous. And she understood that we rely on God for everything. And that's my point. None of this is yours. Look at it. It's not yours. All of it fades. All of it rots. All of it dies. Everything passes. Nothing lasts. Only, only our future in Jesus lasts. That's it. Nothing else. The rest is a media scam, ladies and gentlemen. Your clothes are to keep the cold off because we live in Britain. Your house is to keep the rain off because we live in Britain. Your car is to get you around because we are supposed to travel a lot. Your job is to put food on the table. Your children are there so that you can bless them in Jesus' name. why has God given you what He's given you? Why? What is it for? Why are you so bright? Why are you so intelligent? Why are you so clever? Why are you so spiritual? Why has God revealed Himself to you? Why has He done that? For what purpose? To bring glory to Jesus, to grow you up in eternity, to let you understand the priorities of life, that you might rely on God. If you're in a grip, let Jesus set you free. If you need prayer for that today, come and see him. I apologize, it's my plan and I've gone too long. But uh, hey, it's the last one. Let's pray. Father God, we know that you give us challenge not to condemn us, but to build us up. Lord, I pray that you forgive me If by any of these words someone here feels condemned, you know that that's not your will, but that freedom and release is offered to everyone. Father God, I pray that you reveal Jesus and the freedom that comes with that. Set us free by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we know, that we know that our future is secure and that no one can pluck us out of Jesus' hand. Release us, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.